There's been a lot of talk over the last few weeks about the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. It's a pretty sprawling one as amendments go. It covers everything from citizenship to voting rights to representation rights, due process rights, the validity of the public debt, the power of Congress to enforce laws, and of course, restrictions on the holding of public office by anyone who may have aided an enemy of America or engaged in rebellion against our country. And of course, that's what so many are talking about right now. But really, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution is sort of like the catch-all email address for constitutional challenges. If the claim doesn't fit neatly elsewhere in the Constitution, you can very likely make a case using 14. And unsurprisingly, with an amendment that's so far-reaching and broadly written, it's not uncommon to find plenty of cases throughout history that have been brought to court based on sort of dubious 14th Amendment claims. In an 1873 case, Bradwell versus State of Illinois, the State of Illinois actually argued to the U.S. Supreme Court that the 14th Amendment did not give women the right to practice law in the United States. And then the Supreme Court agreed that the 14th Amendment did not guarantee women a right to be lawyers. So, but while most states actually took it upon themselves to pass laws then allowing women to practice law, it would actually be more than a hundred years before the Supreme Court in the 1976 case Craig v. Boren would actually begin to affirm that, in fact, the 14th Amendment does prevent discrimination against women and states could not restrict women from the practice of law. In that nearly half-century since, not only have women in America been an integral part of the U.S. legal system, they've probably arguably proven to be, in many ways, more skilled at the practice than men are. The newest members of the Politicon podcasting family are prime examples of that, four of the most exceptional legal minds in America. Former U.S. attorneys Joyce Vance and Barbara McQuaid join Watergate special prosecutor Jill Weinbanks and attorney, court reporter, and Boston Herald opinion writer Kimberly Atkins every Friday on Politicon's new podcast, Sisters-in-Law. I'm Clay Aiken, and this week Politicon is extremely excited to welcome one of our own, Kimberly Atkins, to discuss her new podcast with Jill Weinbanks, Barbara McQuaid, and Joyce Vance, and to walk us through, as only an attorney can, all of the political and legal stories rumbling through Washington as it is less than one week away from a second impeachment trial. I'll ask her how she expects the impeachment trial to play out. Will the Senate vote to convict? If they don't, are Democrats right to pursue a 14th Amendment argument to ban Trump from office? And of course, we may actually need an attorney to tell us, how the heck are we going to get along? Are you in Boston or are you in D.C.? I'm in D.C. Are you? I'm in Washington, Are D. you glued to the, to the House floor today like I am? I, I, I watched a little. I wouldn't say glued. I, I'm a little overloaded and burned out, <laughs> oh, well, frankly, yeah. on a lot Fair. of it. So I try to measure it. But Well, I, I have to admit in com- complete stupidity because I've been watching it and all this, you know, on the resolution, calling the motion to the question to the resolution for the motion and all. And I sat and watched them vote on House Resolution 91, I think it was. And I thought, oh my God, 
this yeah. is going to be a totally straight party line vote. They're going to not say anything to this, do anything to Marjorie Taylor Greene and yeah. Democrats. And then I realized after sitting there for 45 minutes, oh, crap, this isn't the right vote. <laughs> it wasn't even it's the right one. It's a procedural vote that it allows was, you to Exactly. It was the procedural the, vote that allowed them to actually debate the vote about, right. oh, my God, I, was, I thought, holy crap. But I am, I'm sort of glued to it because did you pay, I mean, did you pay attention to last night's House conference thing and the Liz Cheney. Uh, yes. Um, she's, were you surprised by the fact that so many Republicans actually did end up supporting her in the end? Yes, I actually was. I mean, I still think it's alarming that you have that 61 who uh, didn't. But I mean, that just shows you when you have a secret vote, um, people can, you know, they're free of their fear of Donald Trump. Isn't what that they, sort of what ironic? What they actually think, yes. That we would think, I mean, we always thought that sunlight was the best disinfectant, and it turns yeah. out that no. this particular virus dies in the dark. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a perfect way to think of it. That's absolutely right. I mean, it's a, it's, it's kind of stunning because uh, you've got a, you've got so many people who are just, I guess they're afraid to say that they think that Liz Cheney has a right to, I mean, what are, they, what are they really afraid of? Does Donald Trump really have that much power still? Well, they're afraid of his voters. They're afraid of those uh, 74 million people that they think have the ability to end their careers and that are still completely loyal to Donald Trump. And keep in mind, we won't know that. I mean, in two years, uh, those voters may feel differently. But but right now, that fear of that entire Trump machine, that Trump army of people who went to the polls is paralyzing Republicans, that they're even going up against someone like, I mean, if you thought for one moment that Republicans would turn against Liz Cheney. One and of Democrats most would be cheering for her. Right. One of the most <laughs> conservative, just uh, consistently conservative uh, politicians that this nation has known, you right. know, the daughter of Dick the family, Cheney. of the whole family, right? Absolutely. Being very so conservative. It's, it's absolutely bonkers. What uh, What do you think should happen to today? I mean, I, I watched, I have been, I don't, you I haven't watched the news consistently for quite a while, but this mm-hmm. particular story has gotten me fascinating because, fascinated because to me, it's sort of like per- perhaps the Republican Party is going to vote today on who they want to be for the next four years or who they want to be for at least the next two years. And I'm dying to see it. But what was interesting to me was that Marjorie Taylor Greene did come out on the floor of the House um, today and come about as close to saying what she should have said three weeks ago um, as she as she has. She said that she did not believe Parkland was a hoax. She knew that 9-11 happened. She had allowed herself to believe things that were not true. And she said, I mean, arguably, what she should have said three weeks ago. Do you think that should matter to Democrats? Should they should they take that under advisement when they cast their vote later this evening? I think that she did the absolute least, which is what I say with my friends when somebody does just what they need to do to avoid uh, getting in the worst possible trouble. Um, Right. Forgive me for for questioning her sincerity, because 
I mean, even her Twitter feed belies this idea that she was somehow duped into believing something she no longer believes and uh, is contrite. It, it, she clearly doesn't think that. She thinks uh, that Democrats are equated with terrorists and and some really horrible things. So I, I don't know. I see her trying to hold on to her uh, committee chairmanship, trying to hold on to her power within the Congress and uh, someone probably impressing upon her, uh, probably Kevin McCarthy, that she needs to get out there and and try to make this right. And she gave it her best shot. Uh, but think about it, what she said, 9-11 happened. I mean, how the fact that well, she that's, has to well, that's say the that. Basic, that's, that's a basic truth, obviously, right. that I think most of us know is factual. But But don't Republicans have an argument when they say that this is quite a precedent to be setting, um, I hate the term slippery slope, but mm-hmm. I have we've seen it over the past eight eight years, especially um, a slippery or eight ten, et cetera, a slippery slope of getting rid of just the filibuster for this, but then they get rid of the filibuster for that, and then it, and do do we have we not learned that what we do to Republicans? Rep, I say we because everybody knows that I'm. Uh, liberal. <laughs> and so I, yeah. I own my bias. I hadn't said that in a few weeks, so it's time for me to say it again. <laughs> um, but don't, but haven't we learned that what we do to Republicans, they turn around and do to us two or three times worse. Um, are we setting a bad precedent here? I don't think so for a couple of reasons. I think you need to use the tools and the rules of the Congress uh to do what needs to be done. And I think when you have a situation where you had a member of Congress who not just before she was elected, uh, but afterwards, after the events of January 6th, was still cheering what happened at the U.S. Congress. That was an attempt to overthrow the government. You can't have someone entrusted to do the, the business of the people if that's how they feel if they're if those are the beliefs that they're espousing. And so if that's the rule that you have to deal with that. Now in terms of this uh slippery slope that we need to find a, a different a different phrase for right. that's it is why pre- this, the precedent. The precedent, the precedent being right. set. The precedent being set. Um that's why you have a vote, you know? I mean think about it was the dozens of times Republicans in the House during President Obama's uh tenure, took votes against him that that made absolutely no sense. You know, votes uh, votes to overturn Obamacare and votes, votes to do all kinds of things that were political statements that were being made, but they didn't pass because it didn't have the support of the House. I'm sure a Democrat will do or say something that angers Republicans and Republicans will try to strip that lawmaker of their committee assignments, but it's a body of 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 representatives from across the country entrusted to do the business of the people if you can't get a majority but, of them to back you. But if it's a party line vote, I mean, if, if it does end up, if it ends up being a, a vote where multiple Republicans, if I actually watch the correct one um, instead of the wrong one, <laughs> it ends up being a vote where multiple Republicans end up uh, deciding to, to vote against her, then certainly that argument holds. But if it ends up being a party line vote, if for some reason Kevin McCarthy can hold his caucus together and he gets a complete split um, <laughs> of Republicans versus Democrats, don't they have the argument then that this was just a partisan attempt to take away committee chairmanships from people from someone simply because they didn't agree with what she said. I 
I will just put it this way. I'm not worried about it, considering that the only time that this has happened in recent history uh, was with former Congressman Steve King, who really did say some really well, abominable things. But we, and, we didn't have to vote even then because Kevin McCarthy actually took him. We didn't have Trump backing him, right? And Kevin yeah. McCarthy just took him off of his committee chairmanships. I mean, it took him off the committees he was on. I guess what I what I wonder is what happens... It does. Do Democrats need to draw a clearer line to d- indicate what exactly it is that she is being censured or punished or taken removed from these committees for? Is it enough to say we're t- taking her off of these committees because she's espoused some crazy things? Or do they need to be more specific and say, this is specifically because she called for violence against Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama? Because crazy ideas aren't illegal. I mean, crazy ideas are subjective, aren't they? I guess they can be. I think in this case is a clear-cut case. I, I just don't see the, the danger of of it being used. And look, you have to, again, as an elected member of Congress, you have to be able to take stances uh, on your principle and based on what's right and not fear the blowback, not fear that, oh, well, one day this is going to be done to me, so I better not do this to the other side. That's not how it works. Um, and so I, 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 I take your point. I understand what you're saying. I just, I personally- I'm playing devil's advocate in, in part. Don't have this fear here. I just see, think it's it's- it's something to it, it, these aren't just weird political views they were anti-semitic they were violent they were really abhorrent things that a member of congress is saying but what makes that just to play devil's advocate even more though what makes that different the anti-semitism from marjorie taylor green what makes it different than ilhan omar's um comments that that even Democrats said were anti-Semitic and were unacceptable. Um, why would Marjorie Taylor Greene be removed from her committee assignments when Ilhan Omar was not? Even though well, she was condemned the, the by Democrats. She was. She, she faced a vote and she she did face a censure uh, for what she said. But she was also right. apologetic and contrite. Um, and she, okay, fair. by all accounts, seems to have uh, learned her lesson in that case. But this is precisely what members of Congress are meant to do. They're supposed to draw these lines. They're in the position to do this. This is why you have these types of resolutions and actions. It's, these are the things that the members of Congress weighed, and they did. They weighed in these two situations. They uh, Each time there was a consequence, one more severe than the other. And that's what their job is. That's what they're there to do is their job. They shouldn't be afraid to do their job because they think it's going to be politicized. It's a political body. Of course, political things happen, but they should be able to do their job anyway. Um, Same feeling when it comes to people calling for Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley to be censured or removed. This is that the, is it, is it in the same pile um, as Marjorie Taylor Greene or should they be more protected because what they did was, as a part of their job. I mean, what she said was outside on Twitter, on social media, what Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley did on January 6th was on the floor of the Senate, which I think is protected. It was their votes, um, which I adamantly disagreed with, adamantly disagreed with, but do, are the calls to have them removed um, justified? If I were a, a member of that body, I think that I could be swayed um, that some sort of censure should be um, 
should be imposed on them as well. Because as you said, A, they were doing it in their capacity as members of the Senate. They also continued to push this idea that there was fraud, that there was something wrong. Legitimate votes of Americans who cast their votes should be dismissed, that these Americans should be disenfranchised. Even after the insurrection took place, they came back. I mean, at least you had some folks uh, like Senator Leffler, who after the insurrection said, "Okay, I'm out. I can't do this. Um, but they continue to push it. And I think one lasting image from January 6th. That makes them assholes, doesn't it? Well, it makes them, it makes them anti-democratic. I mean, I, well, it makes them jackasses. I, I should have said assholes. Of Josh them, holding up his fist to, no, well, right. it, but it, I think it makes them anti-democratic. But is that illegal to be a jackass? I mean, I'm, I guess what I worry about is if we can remove people for voting a way that we don't think is right— then what, what's to stop Republicans from just removing anybody who votes for Medicare for all? Um, <laughs> I, mean, I think they, what's to stop them is, is having a conscience and, well, and being a respectably popular vote. It was the fact that they were trying to stop. We're actually agreeing together, don't have a conscience, right? <laughs> well, look, they were actually taking an effort to try to subjugate democracy. They were trying to stop the votes. Not just not just any Americans. They were they were they were picking, cherry picking the votes of primarily yeah. uh, places yep. of, where there were black and brown votes, black and brown folks casting their votes in places like Atlanta and Detroit and Milwaukee in order to disenfranchise them mm-hmm. and usher in a result that is counter to the will of the democratic people. Yep. I think that that is <laughs> grounds for some I, listen, sort of disciplinary action. Everything, I, think, everything I, I think these are said, clear lines, Clay. I know, yeah, but everything you've said I agree with, except I worry about the day when Republicans are in control again and Mitch McConnell is in control again and he decides that he's going to censure Kirsten Cinema because she likes... She supports gay rights, you know, and she's trying to do things that will give rights to gay people. And we believe that is immoral. We believe that is so, so removing her. I mean, I guess if it, if it's not objective, if it becomes subjective, it, I, I, listen, I think, I've, I think you've answered the question already, which yeah, is that you don't think that say, you're worried about it, right? I will worry about it when Kristen Cinema tries to disenfranchise heterosexual voters uh, in her effort to push forward LGBTQ right. rights. I, I don't think that's going to happen. But if it does, then yes, I think that there probably should be some sort of censure well, against her, too. Well, listen, we had we had uh, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee on a few months back, and one of her one of the things we talked about very briefly, but she she has worked on is reparations for uh, for Black Americans, especially descendants of slaves. Somebody, Louis Gohmert, <laughs> is going to turn around and say this woman is trying to disenfranchise white people because she wants to take white people's money and give it to Black people instead. Let's vote her out. Um, I, so, but but where it's it's not a concern because I mean, I, I guess I see what you're saying. I wish I trusted people to follow the rules more often. And if I could trust people to, if I could trust, especially the people on the other side of the aisle for me to follow the rules, then I think that I would feel a little bit more comfortable that 
occasionally you have to step out on a limb and say, this bullshit's gone too far. Sit your ass down, <laughs> you know? But yeah. I don't know that I trust Kevin McCarthy if he takes back the House in 2022 to not pull Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and AOC off of all of their committees because of some subjective feeling that he has gotten his caucus to get on board with. And I think, unfortunately, when when we start doing, this is my opinion, but I share it all the time, so why the hell not now? <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that, we, that when we allow things to be subjective, we have to expect that they're going to be subjective on the other side. And I just don't know that I trust them to to be reasonable when they have the gavel. Yeah, I just think particularly in the time that we are right now, you have to lead fearlessly. And if you let the fear of what the political blowback might be stop you from doing what's right, then you should not be an elected official. Okay, let's let that be the last word on that one, because I want to hit you with another one that I'm curious about. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love having attorneys on because you make <laughs> you make good arguments and it's not. But, but you know, I'm 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 sitting here anticipating the trial, which I believe begins next week. Is that right? Sometime yes. next week they're starting the trial. For, yes. For um, the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Will it go anywhere? You think? It doesn't seem that that is the case. Look, I try to, again, I will try to be uh, an optimist in, in ways that maybe is unwarranted, but um, the trial hasn't started yet. And I am, again, as an attorney, as an American, it makes me uncomfortable, the these proclamations of what will and won't happen at the conclusion of a trial, how the jurors, mm -hmm. in this case, the members of the Senate, are going to vote when they haven't even begun hearing the case that's being made out. And so mm -hmm. I always hold out hope that they will vote their consciences and that they will do the right thing. But I do think no matter what, this trial is important because the American people need to really see very clearly the case that is being laid out. And look, look, the first impeachment trial was about Ukraine. I didn't think it was terribly complicated, but it's about something a place that's far away and things, favors that may not be clear to everybody. And it was Backroom not something discussions, that, yeah. right. It was not something that people really have a tangible connection to in their everyday lives. This is, again, about democracy. It's about people casting their votes. It's about seeing the Capitol building. Everybody knows. Every I've known this building since I was a kid watching Schoolhouse Rock, you know. We I'm also just watched it live on TV, right? I mean, everybody saw this happen. You know, we did. We watched this played out. People died in this attack on the U.S. Capitol, the most American of American institutions. So I think it's much clearer. And I think it's making the point that even though Donald Trump was voted out, even though he has left office, that it's important that he be held accountable for his role in that insurrection and hopefully not be allowed to hold an office like that again or run for an office like that again. I mean, think about one thing that's at stake that I think people forget. If he is allowed to declare that he's running for president again, he will have another pulpit. He will have another platform from which to say the same misinformation and insightful things that led to that insurrection. If you're going to put an end to it, you need to put an end to it. And right now, 
the 100 people who can put an end to it are the members of the U.S. Senate. Do you think he won't have a pulpit? If he, I mean, aren't aren't Marjorie Taylor Greene and Donald Trump sort of and and their and their entire base in many ways aren't they the types of people who sort of thrive off of? I don't want to use the word victimhood, but I'm gonna. Um, don't they thrive off of that martyrdom of being able to say it's a witch hunt against me? I mean, if if he were to be impeached, do you really think that it would? Uh, if he were to be convicted, sorry, do you really think that it would? silence him you don't think he would just have a almost bigger pulpit maybe because now he's he's aggrieved i don't think so i mean because if he can't run for office if his only power is from his twitter account or from the golf course somewhere in florida um he will eventually fade away but if you keep giving him a means of of raising money and continuing to push this, that can be extremely dangerous. It certainly can be more dangerous than anything he can do without that platform. Um, I mean, so look, look, we have had we have had strongmen leaders before they come and go. If you look at dictatorships, even dictators have have really strong. Um, you will see strong followings, people who proclaim their love for this person, that they're the greatest person ever, that they would follow them to the end of the earth. And then when they're toppled or when they lose Well, most power, of them have to die. I'm not saying nothing t- secret yes. service. I ain't trying to say right. that at all. I'm just saying, but Stalin Don't had do to that. die. Don't do that. Stalin had to, but, well, he died of natural causes, but he died in order to, to end some of these regimes. They do. And, and in some ways, I, don't, I just, I don't, maybe I don't agree with you that Trump's going to stay quiet either way. I don't think he's going to stay quiet, but but in those with those strong men leaders who lose power, people pretty quickly give up on them. You know, I'm not saying yeah. that that will everybody in the same sort of power and following without the president. I mean, listen, I, I like the fact that you said if he's allowed to declare he's going to run because I don't think he'd ever run again. Right. Well, he could. I mean, he could if if it if that's the only way to. Um, what does it say that Mitch McConnell has actually been quiet this time? You know, I, 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 <laughs> I am not sure. Mitch McConnell is is known to keep his thoughts close to the vest when he thinks that that serves Mitch McConnell and serves the Republican caucus. I think that's one way, if anything, for him to sort of wait and see, take the temperature of his caucus. If the caucus has no appetite for convicting Donald Trump to give every single member who votes to acquit him the cover that they need. Or it could mean that he's, seriously considering voting to convict and and wanting to wait to see how it plays out. It can mean any number of things, but Mitch McConnell does what's politically expedient for Mitch McConnell. So I'm not going to read anything into it until we, he tells us exactly what he's going to do. But he, he is sort of a, I mean, I don't know that I'd want to play chess with Mitch McConnell. Um, I don't know that I'd want to be in the same room with him, actually. But um, <laughs> if I were, <laughs> I don't think I'd want to play chess with him because, I mean, he is as as awful as so much of what he does is to me. From a distance, I do have to look back at some of it and say, well, the man is politically sort of smart and brilliant in that, I mean, even after after Trump left the White House, someone had to take on, the become the new face of the Republican Party in Washington. And I think Mitch McConnell recognized, well, if this party is going to embrace Marjorie Taylor Greene or, and, that, and that sort of QAnon rhetoric, I don't want to have nothing to do with it. And Mitch McConnell ghosted. He disappeared. We haven't heard 
but three, four words from Mitch McConnell in the past three weeks, he's let it become the party of Kevin McCarthy. It's not him who's accepting this QAnon sort of craziness. And I mean, he seems to want, as do I think several of the more senior members of the Senate, he seems to want to rid what he calls a cancer from the Republican Party. Um, uh, He's... He had no problem coming out day one of the last impeachment trial and telling us straight up what you said you didn't like, what the jury, how the jury was going to vote when it before it was over. It's 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 sort of telling that there are enough people who I believe enough senators at the moment who have not said anything that if they did decide to convict that he could be convicted. Um, what do you think the House has to do to get them to to go there? Well, just one thing on Mitch McConnell first. Mitch McConnell, up until the 6th of January, was essentially saying the same line as uh, everyone else uh, on that side of the aisle, which is essentially the process will play out or the president has a right to assert his legal challenges and all this other mumble jumbo. And uh, then he shit his depends standing straight up when they got raided. Right. Right. So uh, let's let's put let's put Mitch McConnell in um, the proper context. And as you said, I agree with you completely. Mitch McConnell is one of the most skilled political tactician uh, tacticianists, tacticianers. Did I just make up a word? Um, It's it's Mitch McConnell. (laughs) He deserves his own. (laughs) It's late. I've been up since 4.30 a.m. you know, he's he's a very skilled politician and he knows exactly what he's doing and he knows what he wants. He wants to remain in a place of power. It is a 50-50 split. Anything could happen to shift that split right back to the Republicans. And if it does, he is going to do what it takes to continue into ushering conservative justices and judges mm-hmm. up and down the judiciary, pass the types of policies he wants to pass. And if they're if it requires a few members who are QAnon adherents, I don't think he will uh, discount their votes in favor Fair. of his policies if that gets him there. So I think Mitch Fair. McConnell, again, is doing what he thinks is in uh, Mitch McConnell's and the Senate Republican caucus's interest. So if he doesn't, well, no, well, let me ask you uh, again, the other question again. Wh- what do you think the ch- challenge, the biggest challenge for the House man- impeachment managers are, is right now? What do you what do you think they need to do to to sway a few? Because I, I do believe that unlike the first impeachment trial, I do believe that we're probably looking at more than just Murkowski, Collins, and Romney as possible in, uh, conviction votes. We, there's a mm-hmm. little bit bigger chessboard here. What do they need to do to to get those folks over? I think the most important point that I would push um, to these, aside from the fact that this was an anti-democratic incitement of a coup, is that, look, you have the power. if, If whatever you think about Donald Trump, whatever power he wields over you, you have the power to end this. You have the power for him to go away or at least be, to have his stature shrink to the point that you don't have to fear him anymore. This is in your right. own hands. He's out of office and you can make sure he never comes back. That is what reportedly Mitch McConnell wants. Mitch McConnell right. is glad that that Donald Trump is gone and he essentially would wish he would vanish from the planet. Well, they can politically help make that happen. 
that's in their hands. Um, But I think that it's equally as important for the American people to see this case laid out in a, a clear and understandable way that I know the impeachment managers will lay it out. And then it will be up to the American people to decide for every single one of those lawmakers who vote to say that Donald Trump is above the law, which is essentially what an acquittal vote would be, um, then they themselves would have to face uh, a reckoning on their next election day. Wild question. Would it be a totally horrible idea for, because I don't, I have no, I actually don't have an opinion on this, I'm mixed, for the Democrats in the majority in the Senate, would it be a wildly horrible idea for them to call for a secret ballot on this? It wouldn't. It really wouldn't. I don't, you know, I should, I should probably know. Um, <laughs> I've been covering Washington for 14 years. I should probably know if that's even possible. So, yeah, I guess the, a majority of this just takes a regular majority of the Senate to vote to do a secret ballot. But obviously the, the possible implications of that are no one trusts exactly what happened. Um, and, and the trial is, is declared Inval- I don't know. There's a whole bunch of things that pe- we're not used to seeing Congress vote in secret, right? So it would probably piss a lot of people off. But on the other hand, if if most folks who are in Washington are to be believed, you'd probably get 20 or more Republicans, right, if it was secret. Yeah, I think it's it, just the vote that was taken uh, on Liz Cheney. Uh, that ended uh-huh. up being f- far more lopsided than the whip count uh, suggested shows that that's <laughs> a very real possibility that you'd happen. And yeah, I think it's valid to say that could really uh, taint how some Americans see this. But honestly, Clay, I think that so many Americans are going to see this through their own lenses anyway. Yeah. That I'm not even sure that that is um, that that's the biggest concern here. I think that that would have been smart. I think it would have been smart for the Democrats to have some Republicans as managers. I think um, they could have had uh-huh. a, a Adam Kensinger or, or, or uh, even the independent Justin Amash. Um, I think that would have done a lot to make this not look like it's just the Democrats going after Trump again uh, and really hitting home for people at home who are on the fence or people in the Senate on the fence that this isn't about partisan politics. This is about democracy. I, yeah. So I, I think both of those would have been a, a good idea. If that doesn't happen, that's that's too bad. Um, okay. So last thing about impeachment, because before I move on, if they don't convict, there's been a bunch of discussion, I think especially Tim Kaine is the one who's brought it up the most about this 14th Amendment possibility and using the 14th Amendment, even in lieu of um, conviction in the in the Senate, to say that Trump has is, is ineligible to run in the future um, because of the 14th Amendment saying that anyone who is engaged in insurrection or rebellion or aided the enemies of America um, is ineligible to hold office under the Constitution. Is that a wise thing for Democrats to do if they can't win conviction? I I think yes. I mean, I think, again, that the real danger is for Donald Trump having, if he is not convicted, if he is not um, 
rendered ineligible to run again. And I, I take your point that he probably doesn't really want to run again, but oh, he no, really he wants... He doesn't want to run the risk of losing again. But he really wants that platform and he can oh, always yeah. do it for a while and fundraise and be able to hold rallies you know, at the expense of his supporters and, and then at some point down the line say, you know, that it isn't worth it or something else or find some other reason or lie to say, to bow out, to avoid losing. But in the meantime, that can be so damaging. That can do so much damage. That's the thing I'm most afraid of. Oh, well, listen, I'm with you there. Another platform. So I think if there is away. I mean, it's so hard for so many of these things, like, you know, using the 14th Amendment, is it wise to try to use it in that way? We've never, we don't have any precedent for it. Because right, but put on like your this attorney. has never happened. Well, like, I am. This is my I know, attorney. But, keep it all, but, but think about, I know, but, but think about the fact that there's no due process involved in that. And if he was acquitted in the Senate for insurrection, and this, I mean, again, I just think about the fact that I don't want Donald Trump on my TV anymore. I don't want to see him in the news. I don't want him on TV. I've been on TV with him plenty of times. I know he loves a camera. And that's really all he wants is to be on TV. A 14th Amendment challenge to his ability to run again ends up at the Supreme Court, does it not? I mean, it's not the type of thing that anyone, he's not been convicted of insurrection in a a Senate trial nor in a federal court. um, And therefore, doesn't that end up Go working its way through district court, circuit court, federal, uh, Supreme Court, um, keeping him in the press, keeping him a martyr. And at the same time, this Supreme Court, which is six to three um, conservative, he, he would win that case, wouldn't he? Well, I, you're absolutely right that this is what uh, we attorneys call a case of first impression, because something mm. like this has never happened before, and this would be a tool that has never been used before. And so we don't have, we don't know what the rules are, and it would ultimately fall to the U.S. Supreme Court to be the arbiter uh, of whether or not something like that is constitutional. Um, again, when it comes to constitutional issues... I would want to believe that it's not a matter of the Republican appointed members of the court versus the Democratic appointed members of the court. We have some precedent of people, including the chief justice, for example, who found that it is not up to courts to overturn legislation that was properly uh, passed or that has any sort of constitutional basis, like the Affordable Care Act, that mm-hmm. really angered Republicans. But that was John Roberts looking at this law, looking at the statute, looking at the Constitution and making a a judgment as a, a, a someone who understands what constitutionality is. And I would think that if there is a basis under the 14th Amendment uh, to keep Donald Trump from running again, that the Supreme Court, regardless of who appointed them, would find that. I know Donald Trump well, would think that I was that about to say, that he ain't the, Roberts ain't the swing vote anymore, though. I mean, it's well, we're talking about, it's, it's Kavanaugh or Gorsuch, and they got appointed by Trump. He's not, and we don't know, look, I don't know enough about how Justice Barrett will rule as a Supreme Court justice because she mm-hmm, hasn't done it right. very much yet. Um, but you'll have to see. I mean, there's plenty of of examples in history of the Supreme Court not necessarily voting along ideological lines when expected to. Uh, right. Again, I would hope that they would vote their conscience and do the right thing. I'm a Supreme Court nerd. I love me some Supreme Court stuff. <laughs> I'm actually one of the only people I know who, when they're in session— 
live, especially now that they've gone into the COVID thing, yeah, you actually can listen can to it. them live. Yep. It's so fascinating to me. I will sit here with C-SPAN 3 on or whatever it is it's playing on, <laughs> and I'll just listen to the cases. Absolutely no clue whatsoever what they're talking about. It's all way above my legal head. But I just think, oh, well, that one, he sounds friendly to that attorney. So he's probably going to side with them or she doesn't seem happy at all. Kagan's right. pissed today. And I totally love it. Is that the kind of stuff y'all talk about on your new podcast? Oh, it's one of the things that we talk about on our podcast, hashtag sisters-in-law. Listen, one of the coolest things is somebody who covered the Supreme Court for a decade. And you're right. Only the people who are in the courtroom normally get to hear the justices Mm -hmm. during these arguments. And one thing that never happened or very rarely happened, I think it happened once in all the time I covered covered it, was Clarence Thomas asking a question, for example. He just sat there. He's, you know, would spin around in his seat. He would chat with Justice Breyer, whoever it was next to him, but he never asked a question. In this format, hearing him ask a question and almost ask several questions in almost every, every case is really mind-blowing. Like, I forgot how deep and booming right. his voice is. You, <laughs> you never hear it. So it's it's really cool. I, I would advise everybody, while you can, to tune in to some of the arguments and listen to them. And, um, and he kind of fun. made people think that he didn't know what the, was going on when he wasn't talking, right? And now at least, although I disagree with him most of the time, I'd think, well, at least he's read the briefs. I can tell he knows what he's talking about. He's not he's not just phoning it in when he's literally phoning it in. Um I think that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I think it's fewer people now. I wondered if he was gonna retire at some point during uh Republican administrations because right. he seems so disengaged. I didn't even I'm like, does he even like this job? But clearly he does. Well he's probably not gonna go. He 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 will end up likely be He's only a few, not too many years away from Douglas's uh, record. He, I don't think he will even be as old as Breyer is now when no. he passes Douglas's record. So there's a decent chance he's going to end up being the longest serving in history. But do you, I mean, so that's Supreme Court nerdy stuff. When Sisters-in-Law <laughs> is talking about Supreme Court stuff, I am absolutely tuning in. But you guys kind of cover everything. You don't just do like the, the courts and whatnot and the legal things. You're talking about yeah. impeachment. What? How did the four of you end up getting together to do this? And um, how much fun is it already? Uh, it's great fun. I'm really, really enjoying it. The four of us uh, were all TV commentators uh, on MSNBC, and we got to know each other. And it was actually viewers who, uh, after seeing various combinations of us uh, on television segments, started calling us sisters-in-law. And <laughs> I know um, some of them did like illustrations and stuff, and and it was very cool. And and um, so that idea became a podcast. We, we, we genuinely like each other when we're on phone conversations that aren't even being recorded. It sounds just like the podcast. I mean, we're just going mm-hmm. on about what's going on <laughs> in the world and talking about it. But you're right. We, we'd look at the political world. Uh, we're looking at policy, politics, and the law, and just giving a perspective from four women who are not only all lawyers, and but have practiced law in different ways. I was a civil litigation attorney. We have two former U.S. attorneys. Jill Weinbanks was a Watergate prosecutor. Um, and 
we have so many other experiences as some are professors. I'm a journalist, you know, Joyce has chickens that we talk about. I mean, <laughs> and Joyce, Joyce this, Vance would have chickens. She does. She has chickens. And, um, you know, so we talk about, we talk about everything from our own perspective and it's just a lot of fun. We wanted it to feel like you are sitting there around a coffee table with us as we break this stuff down. I will say that's what makes yours very fun to listen to because you can tell that the four of you really enjoy each other. You get along as friends. You have a you have a almost rhythm when you talk. Unlike me, where I am diff- with different people every week, and sometimes I can't. I, sometimes I talk over them. I feel like I've talked over you too much tonight. But no. um, <laughs> but sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. You're thrilling. I'm not gonna lie. Sometimes we have some boring guests on here. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> it is some. <laughs> I think this is gonna be. To be honest, but. I love that there's, it, it is sort of like sitting around at, um, you know, at a bar with the four of you listening to it. And there really aren't four women who are more adept. I'm a MSNBC viewer. I do watch all of them. I'm not loyal to anyone in particular. But mm-hmm. MSNBC has the attorneys that on their on their docket that know their <laughs> stuff and this podcast is perfect. I didn't even realize that people called you sisters in law before yeah. this podcast, but I do like that. Um we here at how the heck are we gonna get along um take questions from our audience um when they uh send them to us. We actually got a few questions sent in to us, not to us, but to our Politicon at podcast at politicon.com email address because they listened to the first few episodes of Sisters in Law and they wanted to ask a few questions. Um, So I'm going to pull those up here if I can get them. Um, And they're very geared towards women in in, uh, in law, it sounds like. Christy from Boulder, Colorado, who listened to you guys, asked, what's the best way to stand out as a female associate at a firm? Oh, Christy, that's a great, uh, that's a great, great question. I think the number one thing to do is really good, competent work. Um, And as difficult as it can be at sometimes, don't let the sexism that you will experience um, stop you from doing that good work. I remember when I was a young associate practicing law in Boston, Uh, straight out of law school. I have a young looking face anyway. And I was 25 years old. I was in a place like Boston where in every courtroom I was, people were, when I would walk into the courtroom to check in to argue my case, they would ask me if I was represented by counsel. They would ask me if I was a criminal defendant. You know, I'm the only black woman in a suit and carrying my litigation bag in there. So it it was tough. And even judges would sometimes uh, try to discount um, my my right to be there. And it was when I brought the goods. It was when I argued. Uh, I argued well. I came prepared. I researched. And that is what made me win cases. That is what made me win motions. And that is what earned my respect. So do good work. Um, have a strong have a strong network of people around you who support you. Um, and the best of luck to you. You'll do great. Okay, I'm going to stick in that same vein uh, here because Jenny, who's from Boston, asks, I'm graduating law school this year. Should I go corporate or government? You should go do what will make you happy. 
I went into law again. I was a civil litigator. I thought that was what I wanted to do. I was going to be the Black Ellie McBeal. I was going to do it. <laughs> you know, I was all ready to go. And I got a great job with great people where I was arguing my own cases from the beginning. And I realized that it wasn't for me. And I lasted a few years before I left and switched to journalism, which I'm thrilled that I did. Um, but it took a long time for me to listen to myself and go with my heart. And you don't want to get locked in a job for 20 years or two years or two months. That makes you unhappy. And so I say, do what makes you happy. The bills will get paid. It might not always be easy. Listen, when you go into private practice, you're not everybody's rolling in the big bucks either. Um, so money is not the only consideration, uh, especially in the beginning. So I think you know by now what you really, what your heart is calling you to do. So I say, listen to that. Yeah, Jenny, you didn't ask me squat, but I'm going to answer and cosign <laughs> everything that she said. Because I imagine that, Jenny, if you've asked these folks, um, uh, any folks this, this question, probably 85% of them have told you ex very similar to what Kimberly just said. But the reason is because it's true. You really, mm -hmm. it, you've got to do what you enjoy and you've got to do it whether or not you're going to get rich or make money yeah. at all because money, I've heard somewhere money doesn't buy happiness. Um, I can't remember where it was. <laughs> it's the true, it's very true. <laughs> um, okay, uh, Kimberly, I'm going to switch um, gears here. Mohammed from Chicago asks, have the measures our local governments adopted during the pandemic been constitutional? I love that question. I'm fascinated by this. I'm assuming he's asking about um, stay-at-home orders, yeah. uh, shutdowns of, of restaurants and whatnot. Yeah. mask mandates. You know, they're still being litigated uh, as we speak. And judges, for the most part, have upheld them. But there have been mm. times that they were struck down. So I think this is still, I mean, you have to understand that we've been in this pandemic for a year. And usually questions, particularly constitutional questions, they take years to make their way through the legal system to come up with a final and conclusive answer as to whether one measure might pass constitutional muster and another one doesn't. So for a lot of these, the answer is still unclear. But for the most part, they seem to be uh, upheld when you have an emergency situation like this. There is precedent for the governor for the government to take extraordinary action in the in the interest of public safety. And so I think for the most part that they're probably okay unless they're too stringent. Again, it also depends on the rule. Uh, but that's a great question. I think the jury's still out, but mostly yes. One of the th one of the ones though that has been has been litigated has made it to the Supreme Court, and they decided on. Exceptions being given to religious institutions. I think some of the churches were arguing that they should not be shut down. And if correct me if I'm wrong here, some of the the restrictions that were laid down by states, California, North Carolina, wherever, were that any any groups like theaters, any gathering spaces where more than a certain number of people were um, gathered for a movie or a play or a church yeah. service or whatnot could not exceed X number of, of folks. And I believe the Supreme Court said that that restriction could not apply to churches because um, uh, maybe it was Alito who wrote it, or maybe I just heard him comment on it saying that, well, that would be restricting church services. How is that? Isn't that giving, what, wouldn't the restriction itself, which is anybody who's got more than 250 people in a room cannot open, 
that's right. that's not restricting a religious service, is it? That's restricting a number of people. And if you happen to be a church that has more than 250 people, then sorry. Um, but the court allowed churches to open even though theaters were not um, allowed to open. Is that, was that, to me, that just seemed like a wrong decision. Yes. Yeah, so w- these weren't uh, decisions in the case that the ruling is final. What happened is oh, there are legal challenges filed and lower courts would issue something that's called a stay and usually prevent some of these rules from going into effect. And that stay order gets immediately appealed to the Supreme Court, which decides, uh-huh. okay, while the case is making its way through the court, do we let this stay order uh, stay in place or lift it and say that the lower court was wrong? So it was in one of those rulings uh-huh. where the court was uh, was uh, did ultimately allow a rule like that to be blocked to try to limit churches um, where the court took that action. And, and Alito uh, actually said in a speech at the Federalist Society okay. that he's really worried about these religious, um, uh, about these sort of actions trampling on religious rights. But that's a big red flag, right? Do you hear from a justice talking in this way, s- is clearly signaling that he would be amenable to ruling in that direction. And especially when you have uh, the newer member of the court, the court shifted to the right. That mm-hmm. is something that could be moving its way down the line. Well, if I got to pick one person to retire, that's who it would be, Um, (laughs) Sam Alito. So, um, (laughs) Muhammad, it sounds like Kimberly's saying, we don't know the answer to the question, but we will soon, and then we'll be ready for our next pandemic, because we'll know the answers then. (laughs) Um, Last question is Isabel from St. Paul, Minnesota asks, should the Supreme Court have more justices? My personal opinion, Isabel, is no. Um, I think... In the, I think that's we were talking about bad precedent. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I think any move to quote unquote pack the court, put more justices on in order to try to to tilt the ideological balance, is certainly going to have a backlash effect. Mm-hmm. And the next time the other party is in 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 power, they will do the same thing. And I think that would be to the detriment of the legal system. I do think that the court needs to be reformed. I mean, whether that looks like term limits to you know, sort of disincentivize presidents from nominating ideological children, basically to have a justice on the court for, you know, three, four, five decades um, in order to solidify the court. I think that's a good idea. Um, I think um, putting more... How long would you make the term limit? You know, there is a there is a proposal that is floating around that has by uh, bipartisan support or, or at least ideal broad ideological support that mm-hmm. says 18 years mm-hmm. and they'd be spaced out. So basically every president would be guaranteed two Supreme Court justice appointments absent um, some other, you know, a, a retirement or, or, or a death a vacancy some other right. way. Um, but that ultimately will take the politics out of that fight. And in no, a way that makes and it no. Better. No ability to do a second term, just one 18-year term, right. and that's it. 18 it. and out. And then they can go on and be professors or do something else, um, but it would really work to take the politics out of the court. Would it worry you that perhaps the the attractiveness of being a professor or the the attraction to having a great paying gig. I mean, because I mean, Supreme Court justices don't get paid that much. Um, they no. don't get paid that much more than Congress members of Congress. Um, the attraction to knowing that at the end of your 18 years, you could go be the corporate attorney for an Amazon as yeah. long as you as long as you 
didn't piss them off in the 18 years that you were there, would that concern you at all? Should that I mean, if they're going to con- do 18 years, shouldn't we just say, and then we'll give you a pension for the rest of your life, but you can't do nothing else? That doesn't concern me so much. I mean, Supreme Court justices already write books and do other things that can be lucrative. If you look at their financial disclosures, none, or I should say few of them are right. ter- are particularly poor. Um, so right. I think Suter, all, Suter's poor, but he Suter, wanted to be. <laughs> I think the I think the poorest one, at least at one point, was Sotomayor. Like she uh-huh. had, you know, she went to law school and had loans, and she, you know, worked as a judge and didn't have these big corporate jobs that some of the other ones had had at at, at some at various points in their lives. So I think she had the least amount of money when she, at least when she uh, was installed on the. But on girl, the be writing books. She, but I think yes. she made up for it. I think that's <laughs> yes, <she> probably <laughs> changed. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, Kimberly, how the heck are we going to get along? I mean, you and I are getting along beautifully, but how the heck are we all going to get along? <laughs> I think that despite the craziness of the last year and the events in the country, that politics and everything is cyclical. I think that um, progress is followed by regress. So I'm going hmm. to trust in the general goodness of people, and I'm going to trust that the pendulum will swing back towards sanity. Mm-hmm. And we will just because people being this divided is exhausting mm-hmm. that people, good people, at least enough good people will put in the work to try to end the the, cantank- the cantankerousness and viciousness uh, of the current discourse to get back to a place where we can get along. Well, from your mouth to God's ear, um, <laughs> I, I have been I have been the optimist myself a lot over the year, the past year that we've been doing this show, and and I do believe it is it is hard, <laughs> but I do I do tend to agree with you, and I think that when you say that it's exhausting, I do hope that that becomes the the reason that people want to get along because I think it's easy to do it if you want to do it. And it's easy to get to not get along if you don't want to get along. Um, we can find things to be upset about if we want them, but we can also find things to agree on if we want to find them. So um, I I hope that you're right. I do want to believe that you're right. And we're entering into a new uh, era of people being so sick and tired of being pissed at each other that they finally mm-hmm. just figure out how not to be. Yeah, I hope so. Um, If you're listening to this show, uh, as soon as we put it out, if you're listening to it in the morning, um, then just stick around for another hour or three, and uh, the next episode of Sisters-in-Law will be out. Um, You can always find that on all of your uh, uh, podcast purveying sites or on politicon.com. You can find ways to communicate with myself or Kimberly or Joyce Vance or Jill Weinbanks or um, Barb McQuaid. at Politicon on Instagram, at Politicon on Twitter, um, or you can email at podcasts at Politicon.com. Um, Sisters in Law comes out every Fridays. Kimberly Atkins, thank you so much for being with us. And I hope everybody listens to us and then listens to you too. Thank you so much. I had a blast. Me too. We'll see you next week on How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along? <laughs>